again, want to ex- express our appreciation for the invitation to be here with you this afternoon to present another portion of God's Word. And, it, and as mentioned this morning, very thankful for this congregation and for the fellowship we had one with another. Make sure I get the right sermon. The, uh, a few months ago, we uh, had a, actually, I guess it was two months ago, we had a, a series in Oklahoma City, the home congregation I attend, we called Moral Madness. And something we do from time to time is those, those who have speaking uh, roles at the congregation, we will come together and we'll have a, a conversation about what does the flock need to hear? What are the messages that maybe just by chance we haven't talked about? What needs maybe are, exist that aren't being addressed in some way? And uh, we have those meetings maybe once a quarter, and we talk through, uh, you know, what, what, what you, what's on your plan? What are you going to be preaching on next month? Kind of go through that and make sure that we are addressing the needs the congregation has. And one thing that came up that uh, in our very first meeting that I think came up from several different individuals is that we need to talk more specifically about some of the sins that people struggle with. You know, very often we'll start talking about sin with a big S. We'll just talk about sin generically and the sin that you and I struggle with. And that's important to talk about sin in the high level abstract context, but sometimes we need to get very direct. And so we had a whole month long series of what we called, it was in March, it was moral madness as a playoff March madness. I always love a good name. As you can tell from my title tonight, hatred, that's a real creative name. We had a whole month on very specific topics and we concluded the month by talking about hatred. Because this is something that I, I think is a, it's a silent killer. It's a, it's a vice that grabs us and we don't know what's there. It's so subtle. And in some ways it's so satisfying, especially when you get a group of fellow people that hate the same things you hate. And you can talk about it with each other. And it feels great. But in secretly it's Satan working on our hearts in such a way to produce a bitterness within us that is devastating to our soul. And so I'd like to think about what the Bible says about hatred, and in particular how the church can be an oasis in a world that is full of bitterness and hatred, how people can find true joy and love among God's people. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. The Bible says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect." Our society has increasingly rebelled against what we might call Christian values. And you can think probably in your mind about some Christian virtue long held in society that now is under attack. And I would suggest that love, the Christian virtue of love, may have been the last virtue to go as far as our society is concerned. It had a valiant last stand. Even in our popular culture, people tried to express the value of love with songs like what the world needs now is love, or all you need... Who can forget John Lennon's scratchy voice, all you need is love, right? 
Where is the love? Another song. Of course, I seriously wonder when, when society would sing about love if it actually understood what love is in the biblical sense. But we, for a long time, have talked about the need to love. And as Christian values have become less and less commonplace in the world around us, I think it's pretty clear to me, at least, that what the Bible calls love is a very rare thing to find. And perhaps it always was, but certainly in today's time, it is. And human history, I think, demonstrates very clearly that we've always struggled with loving our neighbor. Always struggled with this high standard that Jesus sets out before us. Our stomachs turn when we think back to some of the things that that even in, in our own history that went on. That shouldn't have gone on because of love. And I think we can tell ourselves, as as a society, we can tell ourselves that we've turned a corner. That we're better than our ancestors were. That we're different. That we love and they didn't love. But I would suggest to you that in the world today, we see as much hate now as we ever did. Maybe packaged up in a little bit different way, but we still see it. And how do we know that? Well, I think we know that because... Very rarely do we assume good intentions in our enemies. How often do we actively assign or assume bad motives in other people when in reality we don't know? How often do we rejoice to see our enemies suffer? I'm not talking about we necessarily, I mean broadly. Even more so, are we disappointed when we see good things happen to people we don't like? We can't stand to see good things happen to people. We don't like it. And what motivates that feeling inside of us is hate. From the text we read just a moment ago, there are some inevitable truths, things we cannot escape from the words of Jesus that we just need to accept as true. And the first is that we have enemies. I think sometimes I can convince myself that if I'm nice enough, if I'm pleasant enough to be around, then I can avoid having enemies altogether. That in some way, having enemies is itself a character flaw. But did you notice the words of Jesus? He says, love your enemies. He didn't say, try to be so nice that you don't have enemies. He just assumes that we are going to have enemies. And no amount of politeness or tolerance or kindness will change the fact that there will be people who just don't like us who just are opposed to what we stand for in such a way that they would think of themselves as our enemies. Now, I'm not saying go out there and make enemies. I'm just saying we need to accept Jesus and his words that we're going to have enemies. Sometimes, being polite is not always the right thing. I think we tell ourselves that if we're polite enough, we won't have enemies. Sometimes being polite isn't the right thing. I'll give you an example. If my son is out in the, in the road as a car is speeding down the lane, you know what I don't say to him? I don't say, my dearest sir, if it pleases you, would that you step out of the lane and come? I don't do that. You know why? Because there's danger that's imminent, and sometimes being polite isn't the right course of action. Sometimes you've got to say, hey, get over here now. Politeness is not the same thing as love. Tolerance is not the same thing as love. Sometimes we say that well, to- love is somehow just the, the, a form of tolerance. That's not true. How many great heroes of World War II can you think of that were marked out for their great tolerance of the Nazis? 
None. Because in that moment in time, tolerance was not the right virtue. Tolerance and love are not the same thing. We are going to, in the course of our life, and no matter how kind or polite we think we might be, going to have enemies. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, some folks would read this text and say, boy, Jesus is sounding pretty hard. Pretty, it's a pretty harsh thing to say that you're going to have enemies of those of your own household. But listen, if you follow Jesus the way he says to follow him, you're going to have enemies. And sometimes, I pray that it's not the case, but sometimes it may be people who are very close to you. That's a difficult thing to navigate. Because it's very easy in those moments to let hatred become the defining characteristic of that relationship and not love. Philippians 3, 18 through 19, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. We're going to have enemies if we walk according to the cross of Christ because there will be those who walk opposed to to it. Before I move on, I was handed this card with a question on it. I, I, before I forget, I want to answer that. There was a question about this morning's lesson about sifting you as wheat. I, I assume I'm supposed to answer this. I'm not okay. <laughs> well, I'll just tell you, I, I, that was something I picked up in the footnotes. And so if you're reading your Bible, you look down the footnotes, sometimes you get a little insight like that. That's where that came from. We are going to have enemies. And no matter how much we try, we have to accept that reality. That's the first inevitable truth of what Jesus taught us. The second thing he taught us is we must be distinct or different in our approach to our relationships with other people than the world is. He says, for if you love those who love you, what word do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? People in the world love the people who love them. That's normal. There's nothing special about that. Even the Gentiles do that, Jesus says. But we've got to love in a way that's distinct. So whatever the Bible calls us to do as it relates to love is more than just loving people who are like us or loving people who love us. It has to be deeper, more grounded in the gospel than that. I don't want to be like the world. I assume because you're here, you don't either. We want to be different. We want to be distinct. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He says don't act like the Gentiles do. Don't walk like they walk. Don't live like they live. We've got to be different. Now there's something going on in the world that I've observed, I'm assuming you've observed too. It's something that Christians must not take part in. And at the risk of being too tethered to the current mood, I'll, I'll use the phrase that people use. They talk about cancel culture. Talk about, well, someone's canceled. They did something in spite of their teary-eyed confessions. We won't accept them. They've been canceled. And I want to tell you, the church is a place of forgiveness culture. We must be a place where people can be forgiven and trust that they're forgiven in spite of what they've done. We have to be different from the world. I hope we don't spend our time as believers on social media, canceling our enemies. 
trying to uncover something or some word that they've said or done in the past and trying to embarrass them to the degree that they can't show their face again. I want to tell you, I bet that feels really good, but that's not what Jesus calls us to be. That's not what Jesus calls us to do. We are a people that are meant to forgive and to love and to welcome change. And when someone says, you know what, I've messed up in the past and I'm, I, I'm different, I'm not that kind of person anymore. It is not our place to be skeptical and say, well, I don't really believe you. We are to love our enemies, as Jesus said. We are to pray for our enemies. And we are to embrace a culture of forgiveness. Every so often in my sermons, I like to quote different authors or Christian historical figures, and there's a quote I'd like to share with you from the great philosopher uh, Brad Paisley. He's got a song called Those Crazy Christians, and I love this song. I encourage you to, to look it up if you can. The lyrics go like this, those crazy Christians I was gonna sleep in today, but the church bells woke me up and they're a half a mile away. Those crazy Christians dressed up driving down my street get their weekly dose of guilt before they head to Applebee's. They pray before they eat, they pray before they snore, they pray before a football game, and every time they score, every untimely passing, every dear departed soul is just a good excuse to bake a casserole. Those crazy Christians go and jump on some airplane and fly to Africa or Haiti and risk their lives in Jesus' name. No, they ain't the late night party kind. They drink, they curse the devil's whiskey while they drink the Savior's wine. One famous preacher has a big affair and then one tearful confession, he's born again again. Someone yells hallelujah, they shout and clap and sing. It's like they just can't wait to forgive someone for just about anything, those crazy Christians. Instead of being outside on this sunny afternoon, they're by the bedside of a stranger in a cold hospital room. And every now and then they meet a poor lost soul like me who's, new, who's not quite sure just who or how or what he ought to be. They march him down the aisle and the next thing you know, they dunk him in the water and here comes another one of those crazy Christians. I love the sentiment that's captured there. Yeah, we're crazy sometimes. That's surely what it looks like to those on the outside. The things we choose to do, the things we choose not to do, look distinct. Looks different from the world. But I hope it's the kind of difference where someone looks at it and says, you know what? When I'm in need, I know who I'm going to call. I know who can help me. I know who will give me the shirt off their back. I know who will forgive me for just about any. That's the kind of reputation I hope we have. A distinct reputation from the world. And the next inevitable truth that Jesus points out for us in this text is that we have a high standard. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Before that, he says that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Now, by show of hands, how many people here have the same job that their dad had? One, two, three, not many. Not many. In their day, if we were back 2,000 years and I asked that question, all the hands go up. Your dad was a carpenter, you were a carpenter. You didn't go down to the Votech. That's just not how it worked. You, you took on the family trade. And so when the Bible talks about being sons of our father, that means we do what he does. That's what sons do. Sons grow up to be like dad. And when Jesus says you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, that's what he's telling us. We have to imitate 
the love that the Father has, that the Father demonstrates. It's a high standard. Here, also in the, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five nineteen. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a high standard. It's a difficult standard. It is not easy to love the way that God loves. Let me ask you, though. You say, well, I love people. I love the people who have their lives together. I love people that seem to have their heads on straight. Well, how put together was your life? And how screwed on straight was your head when God chose to love you and send his son to die for you? Because I suspect you weren't all put together. I suspect you still aren't in many ways. But God loved you, as Romans 5 says, when you were an enemy. And if God loved us as enemies, and we are to be sons of our Father in heaven, and to adhere to that high standard, we must have a type of love that is not easy, and it is uncomfortable. C.S. Lewis once said in his book, The Four Loves, that to love someone is to make yourself vulnerable to that person. In other words, to make yourself open to pain. That's what it means to love someone. You know, I don't get that bent out of shape when someone I don't know or don't like doesn't like me. I'm not, I haven't opened myself up to pain. I don't love them. But do you know the people in your life where the, the, it hurts the worst when they're critical? The cuts are the deepest. It leaves a mark. Do you know the, the, who that is in your life that has that a power and influence over you? It's the people you love the most. Because you've opened yourself up to be corrected. You've opened yourself up to pain, to be vulnerable. And that's a difficult place to be in. There have been Christians throughout the ages who would argue that, no, really, you should only ever love God in that way, but you should more or less close yourself off from your fellow Christian because they'll only ever let you down. So don't open yourself to that kind of pain. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. The Bible calls us to have a type of love that's willing and vulnerable to be hurt. God loved us so much that he was vulnerable to pain, even the pain of death on a cross. When we love someone, we open ourselves up to being hurt by them. I want to talk briefly about the definition of love. We've alluded to this already, that the world's definition of love is not the biblical definition of love. There's hardly a word in the English language that suffered such violence as the word love. Of course, the love we're talking about is what some people call agape love, unconditional love. A decision, not an emotion, a decision to place someone else in high esteem and to love them. The Christian version of love. And this type of love has nothing to do with passion or lust or fleeting emotion. This is not a feeling, but this is a choice. C.S. Lewis defined it this way. I love this definition. Love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. If you love someone, you want what's best for them. Sometimes that's tough. 
Because you can see a pattern of self-destruction in their life that you want to help stop. And if you love them, you want what's best for them. It's the steady wish for the good of the other. This is a, a text we talk about all the time here in Mark. But there's a detail that I didn't notice until I was putting this lesson together that just jumped off the page at me. Mark 10, 17 through 22, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Then he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. There's an incredibly important detail buried right in the middle of the text. Did you see it? The Bible says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now remember what we said out at the beginning. The way we are to love our fellow man is to love like Jesus loves, to love like God loves. That's the standard we're, we're trying to attain to. Not loving in the worldly sense. But Jesus looked at this man and loved him, so if we're going to have a goal to love like Jesus loved, the bells ought to be going off in our head. Hey, listen, this is important. Pay attention. Because Jesus loves this man. And the man who approaches Jesus here is not perfect. Evidently, he held in his heart a degree of love for the possessions of this world. He had some degree of covetousness. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this man inside and out. And he loves him. And that's why Jesus steers this conversation in that very direction. Let me ask you this, though. In what way did Jesus love him by what he said? Because by what Jesus goes on to say to this man, the Bible tells us that he disheartened and discouraged him. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, he was disheartened and discouraged. Jesus' words effectively ended his relationship with this man. And his words to him were certainly not tolerant in the modern sense. Not accepting. It's not the type of words that make you friends and win people to your side. But yet, in spite of that, in spite of the fact that what Jesus said, he knew would dishearten and discourage this man, it would strain the relationship, and it would practically end their relationship together. In spite of the fact that Jesus knew that, Mark goes out of his way to tell us that Jesus loved this man. So what does it mean that Jesus loved this man? It certainly doesn't mean he was accepting of his life. Here's what Mark is telling us. Jesus was the ultimate exemplar of love because he wanted the ultimate good for this man. And that's evidenced by the fact that he was willing to tell this man the truth. Now, if you want an easy way to tell if you love someone, it doesn't get easier than this. Are you always willing to tell them the truth? Because when you lie, it's not because of love. When you lie, it's typically to protect your own emotion, your own reputation, your own interests. Well, I don't want this thing to be between us in our relationship, so I'm not going, either I'll lie or I'll just refrain from speaking. But I won't tell the truth, in spite of the fact that truth might protect this person from danger, as in the case of the text we just looked at. 
If you love someone, you tell them the truth. Now that's the opposite of what the world will do. The world will tell you if you love someone, you keep your mouth shut and accept their lifestyle. And that is not what Jesus does here. If you see someone in danger from an oncoming train, it is not love to keep your mouth shut. And if we love someone and we know that their life is a life of self-destruction that will end with separation from God, it is not love to keep our mouth shut. Now, that's not to say that we should always run our mouth. There's a time to speak and there's a time to refrain from speaking, the Bible tells us. But it tells us that if we love someone, we will tell them the truth, as Jesus did. Well, what is hate? few definitions the Bible gives us. Titus 3 and 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So hate in some way is a, an intersection of malice and envy. It's emotional. It's malice. An active wish for harm in your heart towards the other person. Sometimes it's motivated out of envy. We can think back to how Pilate was wise enough to know that it was for envy that the Jews handed Jesus over. They hated Jesus, and a big part of that was their envy. But there's an important distinction between hate and love. We said earlier that love is not an emotion. Now, love can be helped by emotion, but it is not an emotion. I'll give you an example of another virtue that's the same way. Think about bravery. Is bravery an emotion? Well, let's assume we're, we go back in time to World War II and we are on the beaches of Normandy and we see two Americans come off their boats and they are storming the beaches. One man in his heart is proud to be an American. He's thinking about victory and honor and all that's good and he bravely storms the beaches with gun and arm. And another is terrified to death. I'm going to die, I'm going to lose my wife and kids back home. But he grabs his gun and he storms the beach just like the other one. Now, which of the two were brave? Both of them. One was aided by the emotion of patriotism and love for country. The other might have been discouraged by the fact that he was going to possibly lose his life. But they both still did what they were called to do, and they were both brave. Bravery ultimately was not the same as the emotion. But emotions can help. Love is the same way. You may have two people who will go out of their way to serve someone in need, who identify someone who's needing the help of the church, and you have one person who says, you know, I just really love this person. I want them to, uh, you know, I just, I feel warm in my heart when I do this good deed, and I want them to do what's right. And you have another person saying, boy, I got a meeting I got to get to, but you know what, I'm going to do this because I said I would, and I'm, this is the right. Which one of those two loved? Well, they both did. One was helped by emotion, but emotion and love were not the same thing. Love was the decision to go do what was right. Hate, on the other hand, seems to me, if you look in Scripture, to be a very emotional response. It's the lack of control. It's anger without bounds. It's malice and envy towards other people. It's a burning fire within us that causes us to wish the harm of someone else. Another definition for love, for hate rather, comes from Jesus. In Matthew 24, verse 10, and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Hatred is a love that has grown cold, and there's an interesting progression here. 
Lawlessness, Jesus says, leads to hatred. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So many have accepted the belief that I can be lawless, yield my life to sin, and love my fellow man all the same. But what is lawlessness other than love for self over and against everything else? That's what lawlessness is. Lawlessness says, you know, what I want, what I feel, what my desires are, that's important. And what you want and what you may think or what the Bible says or what the law says, that's secondary to my desire to do what I want to do. Is that love? Because if I'm willing to elevate my own desires and wishes above what God has said, am I not willing to do that over and against what you want and what you think and what you believe? Lawlessness, Jesus says, causes the love of many to grow cold, and it is a progression. The progression of growing cold is a metaphor that helps stir up our imagination. Little by little, degree by degree, love drops and drops and drops and drops, and finally it is turned into hate. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you have a group of you and your closest Christian friends gathered together for pizza one Thursday evening. And in the midst of the conversation, you lean forward across the table and you say, you know, maybe I'm weird. But does, it just really bothers me when brother so-and-so does this, that, or the other thing. Maybe he leads a song I don't like. It really bothers me. And your group of friends gather around and say, yeah, you know what, you're right, that bothers me too. That's, that's a small offense, right? But the next time you meet, you spend more of your conversation talking about that particular brother who's annoyed you in some way. And then finally, it gets to the point where you'll send a text message. You won't believe what brother so-and-so did at church on Sunday. And gradually, and gradually, and gradually, next thing you know, you can hardly look him in the eye. Because what started as a small degree of bitterness has blossomed into a full tree of hate. That's how Satan works in our hearts. Oh, I love him. Yeah, I love him. I love him in spite of his faults. He's a good guy. And that love gets colder and colder and colder. And the next thing you know, we've yielded to the influence of hate in our life. C.S. Lewis has this, uh, this, is, this is my last C.S. Lewis quote, promise. I have to give myself a quota because I love C.S. Lewis. He's got this ex- thought experiment to determine how much do you truly love. He says this real, the real test is this. Suppose someone reads a story of filthy atrocities in the paper. Then suppose that something turns up suggesting that the story might not be quite true or not quite so bad as it was made out. Is one's first feeling, thank God, even they aren't quite so bad as that? Or is it a feeling of disappointment and even a determination to cling to the first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemies as bad as possible? If it's the second, then I'm afraid the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make us into devils. You see, one is beginning to wish that black was a little blacker. And if we give that wish its head later on, we shall, only, we shall uh, wish to see gray as black, and then to see white itself as black. Finally, we shall insist on seeing everything, God and our friends and ourselves included, as bad, and not being able to stop doing it, we shall be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. It's not a secret that we are at a time in our country where we are politically divided. Now imagine you, you go, you pick up the Dallas Morning News, I guess, the Oklahoman, back where I live, 
cover story. Well, here's a guy that I don't like, never liked him. I thought he was corrupt all along. And on the cover story is Senator so-and-so is as corrupt as embezzling money. And I'll say to myself, you know what? I knew it was true. I always had a feeling about that guy. Well, next week they retract the story. Nope, bad news, bad information. It's not true. And in my heart I think, oh, I bet it was true. And I start to secretly wish it were true because I know he's corrupt. I know he's bad. I can't trust him. And do you realize what I've just done? I've wished that my enemy were worse than he is. That's not love. But I'm afraid that that's precisely the way we view other people. We wish them to be as bad as they could possibly be. I don't know if it, because maybe it helps us feel better about ourselves. The Bible says we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love our neighbors as ourselves. That's not an emotional response. Do you have warm, fuzzy feelings about yourself? I don't think so. I don't. When I think back on myself, I, I know all the flaws. I don't have the fuzzies. I think about my failures. I think about things I wish I could have done differently. Sometimes I think, this is, this is outlandish. Sometimes I think, how, health, how much healthier would I be if I would have chosen never to have eaten a milkshake in my entire life? It's like my favorite food. I'll regret all kinds of decisions, even to the smallest thing, the order I had at Brahms. I don't, I don't have fuzzy feelings about myself. I'm very well aware of my failures. And I suspect most of us are the same way. But you love yourself, don't you? And what does that mean? Does that mean you pat yourself on the back and say, oh, you're a pretty good guy. You can just continue living how you are and be tolerant of all my mistakes. That's not what that means. Because I love myself, I make myself go with my wife to the gym. I don't want to, but it's for my own good. When we love ourselves, it doesn't mean we have fuzzy feelings about ourselves. It means we do what's in our own best interest. And when you love your neighbor, that's the exact same way. It doesn't mean you have fuzzy feelings, but it means you truly, legitimately want what's best for them. I'm afraid sometimes we're so consumed by hate. As we conclude, I want to ask the question, how can we get this right? I think we've established that it's so easy for us to let bitterness spring up in our hearts and turn into a full-blossomed hatred, even for our own fellow Christians. How can we get this right? There are a number of passages in the New Testament that follow this formula. You were a pretty wretched group of people. You did this and that and the other thing, but something changed and you're different now. A lot of passages follow that formula, and we're going to go through a handful of them. We're going to read them back to back to back, and then we'll put them together and see what we can gather out of this. First one is 1 Corinthians six eleven, And such were some of you. Now, he just got done listing all the bad things. You did all this bad stuff. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Ephesians two thirteen, same thing. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. Just got done talking about how they were dead in their trespasses. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. 
Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 2, 8 through 10. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And finally, Titus 3, 4 through 7. But, all this bad stuff you were, but now, when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, I want to put all those verses together on this table, and maybe we can start to see some patterns that emerge. Every verse we read broke down the actor in our lives that helps us change by person. Sometimes God, sometimes Jesus, sometimes the Holy Spirit, and sometimes by our own action. And if we put all these verses together and break them apart, we'll find this. It is God who has made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. It is God, the Father, who is renewing us in knowledge after his own image. It's Jesus who washed, sanctified, and justified us in his name, 1 Corinthians 6 and 11, who brought us near by his blood in Ephesians 2.13. It's the Holy Spirit uh, by whom we are washed, sanctified, and justified, 1 Corinthians 11. And according to the Holy Spirit, we receive the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, Titus 3, 4 through 7. I'll stop right there before we get to that final column. It may seem that it's very hard to change your behavior. I have this conversation with my kids, not infrequently. You, you, gotta, you gotta stop doing that. It's time to, to mature. It's time to take control of your words or your actions. You can't keep doing the things you were doing. And the thing I hear back is, Dad is, oh, but it's so hard. No one said it was easy. It's difficult. Bitterness Hatred, malice, and envy in a warped and twisted way is satisfying to us. Shouldn't be, but it is. Especially when you can do it as a group. It's hard to change, but the Bible tells us that the fullness of the Godhead is at work in our lives to help transform us. God, the Father, His Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit at work in your life to transform you from a person of bitterness and hatred to a person of love and forgiveness. Is it difficult? Yes. But we have the power of God at work in our lives to help facilitate that change. But that final column, the text we read and we put it, we're putting together here, they also have something for us to do. Ephesians 5.13 says, we have to walk as children of light. Ephesians uh, 5.13, we have to tr try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. God is at work in your life, and you have a responsibility to be receptive to his work to change you. You have to walk as children of light. And I'll tell you something I've learned about being on the elliptical this year. One is much better for your knees than the treadmill. So that, that's, that's a free piece of advice for you. The second thing is, about 30 seconds into my routine, I can tell you I don't want to do it. What have I done? 
And before I go, I'm usually pretty good at coming up with all the reasons that I shouldn't go. Like, I'm busy at work today. I've got things I've got to do. I can't take this much time away. Come up with all kinds of reasons. But on my best days, there's some days I don't go, but on my best days, I'll go and I'll put some music on and I will walk on that elliptical as best as I can. I'll tell you something. The benefit from walking on that elliptical has nothing to do with how much I want to do it. It has to do with the fact of, did I choose to do it? I can be there the whole time sweating and groaning, oh, but I got the workout in. And it's that way when the Bible tells us to walk as children of light. There are going to be days you don't want to do it. And about 30 seconds into whatever good deed you're trying to do, you're telling yourself, you know, I wish I had stayed at home. That's not what it's about. Did you make the choice to love or not? Sometimes the feeling will come later. And if you keep doing what is right, keep choosing day after day after day to do what's right and to walk as children of light, the feeling will follow. There will come a time when it gets easier and easier and easier because you've made it a part of who you are, but that doesn't make it any less difficult to take that first step. Second thing he says is try to discern That means you've got to bring your brain into this process. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Sometimes I wish I could put all of this on autopilot. Just, Lord, work a magic trick in my life and make me a better man. I wish it were that easy. But the apostle tells us in Ephesians that we have to make a decision to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And that means there's going to be times that words are about to pass through your lips and to the ear of some hearer, and you've got to ask yourself a question. Is what I'm saying pleasing to the Lord? You've got to discern that. You've got to make a decision. Is this loving? Is this forgiving? Or will this stir up bitterness and hatred? I want to tell you the benefit to getting this right is creating a church that is full of love, that's full of welcoming, that's full of forgiveness. The first time I gave this sermon, I had, the, I had an advantage to give this in my home congregation. And I used an illustration that won't make sense here, but I'll, I'll use it anyway. Hopefully, you'll piece it together. There is a certain challenge in attending the church you grew up in. I suspect, I know many of you grew up come, going to this church. There's a certain challenge to that, and I'll tell you what it is. The older members remember every embarrassing thing you've ever done. I've been told, I don't know this, I I was too young to remember, but I've been told and people have assured that I don't forget. One time when I was a toddler, I came stumbling out of the bathroom, completely clothless, out into the assembly of the church. And some of the members remember that. Fortunately, I don't. Every embarrassing thing I've done, they know. I think back to some of the early sermons I would give and I would just, oh, I can't believe I gave that sermon. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe... I had a sermon one time, guys. This is a confession. I made an off, this is, I was probably 15. I made an offhanded remark about a crying baby. While a crying baby was in the congregation, what was I thinking? Chris and my, I don't know if she was there for that. I don't know if we were dating at that point. You know what? I know the mother of those kids. I baptized two of her sons. She forgave me for that. It is a blessing I cannot describe to belong to a congregation where people love you in spite of all your failures. 
And this, I tell you something, if you have a church of love, where we love and we forgive and we help and we help each other grow, that's an attractive thing in this world. We live in a desert of hate and spite and bitterness, but this flock can be an oasis of love and forgiveness. And if it is, it will be a true blessing to this community. Thank you so much again for your attention. I really appreciate the invitation to come speak. I, uh, as I mentioned this morning, I've been to this congregation through the various youth meetings in the past. One of my very first lessons given here. And it's always a pleasure to be back and to see you all again. Thank you so much. If you need the help of the church in any way this afternoon, if you need to put the Lord on in baptism or to receive the prayers of the congregation, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.